You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parenting Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parent Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. I didn't grow up in the best circumstances. My dad left before I before I got to meet him. My mom was addicted to drugs and alcohol, so when it came time for her to raise me, I just, she really couldn't. So I got taken away from her. I've lived with my grandma ever since. For the most part, growing up with her, it wasn't bad. It didn't really start to get bad until I got to middle school. And when I got to middle school, I was hanging out with the wrong people. I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. After struggling with depression, just kind of being not happy with life, multiple therapy programs, years of self-harm, I tried to commit suicide. My goal was I wanted to go to school and I wanted to die in class. I took a bottle, I took a bottle of painkillers with me and I went to the bathroom and I got four or five handfuls deep before my friend came and stopped me. The strange thing is, is I didn't really feel sick, I didn't throw up, I didn't pass out. My body just kind of took it, but little did I know that, that was God's hand on me. Fast forward a little bit to high school. I'm a freshman in high school. I start dating this girl, and she started. She brought me to advance. I we'd been I'd been going for about two three weeks, and then we broke up. But after we broke up, I continued to go. Fast forward another year, and after people pouring into me, and people being with me, and people helping me down this journey of me not knowing if there even was a God, we were up here at camp in the mountains, and it was one night when our pastor was speaking. And at the end of his service, he said, I want you to go out, find a place and pray. And out of the corner of my eye, I had noticed a cross that was beside me the whole night. It was at that moment when he told us to go out and pray, I went and knelt at the cross. And when I was kneeling at the cross, I felt an overwhelming presence that I had never felt before. It was at that moment of me being there, being vulnerable, crying, just being open with God, that my friend Hudson came over and wrapped his arm around me. And he said, do you feel that? And I said, yeah. He said, that's the presence of God with you right now. And we prayed together. And it was at that moment that I accepted Jesus into my life. Without that, I don't know where I'd be right now. No telling if I, if we had looked at the, the time frame of what I told, what I, where I was at that point. I can't say I'd be here right now. After I graduated high school, I had decided that I want to be a life. I wanted to be able to be that person in someone's life that I had for mine. He's given me something to live for. He's helped me know that no matter what happens in my life, there's still gonna be someone with me. That sure, I am broken, but through him, I'm a new creation. I owe my life to Christ. This week, I'm going to start a blog series on my Facebook page and, and other social media um, in response to the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a series that's become incredibly popular, especially among teens, about a young girl named Hannah who gets hurt 13 different ways by 13 different people and decides in the last episode to take her life and to commit suicide. So my blog is entitled 13 Reasons Why Not, and it's going to be for teens, but others who are contemplating suicide, that there are reasons to live, and suicide is the ultimate expression of selfishness that can never be taken back and leaves a devastation in people's hearts. So tell your friends, please share it, and especially with teens who are suffering with this, suicide's the second major reason for teen deaths in America today behind accidents. So it's real. And so let's introduce people to the great love of Jesus who can set us free to live, not die. Isn't that true? Would you give God the praise for that truth? It's absolutely reality. Welcome to Forest Hill Church, one church, six campuses. Uh, this month of June, I'm going to be at different campuses on Sunday morning, uh, this weekend at the Uptown Campus, uh, on the other Sundays at different campuses. I just want to experience what's going on in their lives and ministry. Uh, it's great being at South Park as well, but uh, after my break this summer, I'll see you guys in August, and I really want to be with these uh, different campuses. Also, in the different messages, you've seen that one-legged chair. And many of you have asked me, what in the world is the one-legged chair all about? And we have purposefully and intentionally not told you to keep you in suspense, right? What's the one-legged chair? It's for the book of Amos, really, which is saying the nation of Israel seemed like it was standing strong, but really wasn't. Seemed like it was healthy, but it really wasn't. Much like America today is standing on one leg, seeming strong, but so much is missing, especially... And the problem we'll address today, the problem of national and individual pride. National and individual pride. Now, real quickly, Amos's historical context, for those of you who don't know, uh, Israel divided into two kingdoms around 950 B.C. And, and the reason was because of some continued hostilities between the thrones of King Saul and David, which had lasted for another 100 years. But when Solomon, David's son, finally died, those fissures of division revealed themselves, and the two kingdoms divided, the northern and the southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom, 10 tribes. The southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. Well, the northern kingdom lasted about 200 years in seeming prosperity and health. But near the end, in the mid-750s or so B.C., after 200 years of existence, God calls a prophet from the southern kingdom. A city called Tekoa was his home. His name was Amos, and he goes to the northern kingdom, to the capital city especially called Samaria, and he tells the northern kingdom from God that they're basically a one-legged chair. They're not really as strong as they think they are, and God's going to bring his judgment upon them unless they repent. That's the historical context of the book of Amos. And if you remember, we looked at Amos 7-7, which is the plumb line. And these words were spoken. This is what he showed me, God showed Amos. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And those of you who know building know a plumb line is a weight that's dropped from the top of a wall to measure if it's straight or not. Because if the wall is crooked one way or the other, the wall's going to what? 
It's going to fall with, with the slightest push, especially when an enemy comes against it. Well, the plumb line represented God's law, God's purposes, God's standards that the northern kingdom was not obeying. And that was going to bring God's judgment. And we've looked so far at several of those. The first week on Mother's Day, I taught you about the cows of Bashan. And some of you went, how are you going to tie that into Mother's Day? It was about the wealthy women who wanted more and more wine and, and pleasures and a luxuriant lifestyle. And they kept pushing their husbands to put the poor in tougher situations of work to earn more so they could have more. And, and because of that, God professed his judgment upon the northern kingdom because the luxuriant cows of Bashan, these women weren't using their gifts to serve the poor but to oppress the poor. And then secondly, we looked at the, a powerless faith, how the northern kingdom had a form of godliness but no power. They went through all of the rituals of their festivals and they would sing their songs to God and God said, I hate your singing, not because they were off key but because it was a powerless faith. They were just going through the motions. There was no relationship and dependence and obedience to God. It just wasn't there. And then we saw in the next week the disregard for the poor. The campus pastors did that one last week. And thank you all for doing such an incredible job of bringing to the fore how God was angry with the northern kingdom for their luxuriant lifestyle that forgot the needs of the needy. And today's message is the fourth one that Amos preached. It's basically a call of God's judgment against Israel's national and individual pride. It's national and individual pride. It's throughout the book of Amos. I picked out several verses out of reverence for the reading of the scripture. If you're able, would you now please stand? Here is the word of the Lord from Amos about Israel's national and individual pride. First of all, Amos 6, 1 through 3, woe to those who are at ease in Zion, all the wealthy, luxuriant people. Woe to you. The Hebrew word is oi. Woe, oi. To those of you who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. Everything seems prosperous in Israel at this time. The notable men of the first nations to whom the nations of, of Israel comes. The, the, the most popular and powerful people from other nations would come to Samaria and Israel for counsel. Pass over to Calneh and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? Or, O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Keep that in mind. The Lord God has sworn by himself, Amos 6, 8, declares the Lord of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob, that's another name for Israel, and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. In Amos 8, 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And in Amos 8, 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And then from the book of Proverbs 16, 18, read this one with me. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit 
before a fall. And then from the book of James in the New Testament, James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what's going on here? God looks at Israel's national and individual pride, and he swears by himself, by his own name. There can get no greater way of swearing. If you want to make a point, what do you do? You swear to God, right? You're you're talking to somebody and say, this is the truth, I swear to God. So God swears by his own name, by his own person, to Israel, to the northern kingdom, that he will bring his judgment against them using a nation that's far away. And for those of you who know your history, that was Assyria, a rising power during that time. And the reason was because of, A, their pride. Now, now what's pride? You, You hear the word, what does it mean? It's synonymous with ego. The best definition of ego I've ever heard is edging God out. Edging God out. Pride is self-sufficiency. I have all the answers. I live my life the way I want it to be lived. And we edge God out of the equation. That was happening in Israel. They started out as a kingdom devoted to God, but over the decades, over the centuries, God was continually edged out. They took on self-sufficiency. They believed their own strength would protect them. And God says, I abhor and I hate your pride. He also says, I abhor and I hate your strongholds. Now, Now, what's that? The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. It was built into the mountains And the people thought it was impregnable from any outside force. They had built their walls sufficiently. They didn't think any enemy could come and take them over. And God says to them, for those of you who think your city Samaria is impregnable and your nation won't ever be judged because you're part of my chosen people, God says, look at some different cities. And he mentions several, Calneh, Hamath and Gath. They're in three different nations surrounding Israel, and they all had fallen to a foreign power previously. So God says, if you think you're impregnable, if you think you're safe, look at those cities. They too thought they were impregnable, and yet a nation from outside came and overthrew them. Look at them, God said but yet they wouldn't listen. And indeed, God points out the violence that was steadily increasing in the nation. You know, when you get more self-sufficient and rules and laws don't come from God, but you decide what's right and wrong, one of the natural consequences is people can perform violence and do it and think it's not wrong because what law says it's not wrong? And in the northern kingdom, especially during those last 40 years, from 750 until 722 B.C., when the Assyrian nation came and overthrew Samaria and the entire northern kingdom, 
there were five changes of power, and three of them, as you read the Bible, were done in a bloody coup. Violence increased in the nation as they moved away from God. And then you see they're preening like a peacock. Have you ever seen a peacock? Meryl and I one time went to a zoo, and the peacock was the main attraction. And it was amazing how this relatively ugly bird would suddenly spread out its feathers into a multicolored, high-definition wow. And then right after the feathers were spread, what do peacocks do? Remember the word they they preen. Isn't that a great word? They preen. They, they stick out their little bird chest with their huge, colorful feathers behind them, and they start walking <laughs> like this, like they are the best ever. You know, no other bird on the planet is as pretty as they are. They're the best. They preen. Well, that's the idea here. The northern kingdom started preening itself like a peacock, thinking it was truly the best of all nations. And yet, in a nutshell, they always wanted more luxury. They'd forgotten about the poor. They emphasized self, and they eliminated spiritual truth from their lives. They edged God out. And then I think about our great nation. I think about America's pride, nationally and individually. Maybe some of you haven't noticed it, but for those of us who've lived any number of years and who love this nation, I can't speak for you, but for me, there has been a radical rise of the autonomous self. We've seen it. Those of us who've lived long enough over the last decades, especially since the 1960s. Some of you who have some gray hair like I do might remember John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address saying to the nation, ask not what the country can do for you, but ask what, come on folks, you can do for your country. Have you heard a president since then say that? What you hear now, especially in the last several election cycles, is let me tell you what I can do for you. Let me tell you how I can increase your bank account. Let me tell you how you can have more and more. Remember in 1992, President Bill Clinton's slogan, it's what? The economy, stupid. There's been a slow but steady rise in the exaltation of the autonomous self in our nation. And there are many reasons for it. I don't have time to cover them today. But they are rooted mostly in the fact that we have come to grips with the reality that we want life to revolve around us and not give our lives away. We, we want to ask, what can my country do for me? And slowly but surely, that's what's happened. Did you know that Harvard University 
1646 was formed as Harvard College for the purpose of producing literate ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ who would preach the gospel in America and around the world. That was the foundation of Harvard University. Harvard was founded for the purpose of letting every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that Jesus Christ should be the center of everyone's life for eternal life. <laughs> and most recently, the Harvard president today has caught a lot of flack because he has come out and said, conservative voices cannot be silenced on university campuses. And if you're not aware, folks, they are being silenced around our nation by intimidation and sometimes violence. When's the last time you've ever seen a conservative, violent movement? It, it just doesn't happen. But that's the silencing of the person who wants to speak about truth in a nation that's exalting the autonomous self. Did you know that when Harvard was founded, it had nine graduates, and one of them was chosen to give the graduation address? And that person had to either give the address in Latin, Greek, or Hebrew. Why those three languages? They are the biblical languages. And if they couldn't do it, they couldn't give the graduation address. And then I thought about most recently at Central State University, Mike Tyson, the boxer, was given an honorary doctorate. And he gave the graduation address. And he got up and said something like this, I don't know what kind of doctor I am, but in looking out over all the lovely sisters who are out there, I hope I'm a doctor of gynecology. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? I mean, first of all, why is he giving a graduation address? Why is he, secondly, earning a doctorate? Thirdly, how could you allow that stupidity being said at a college graduation? And yet, remember how our nation was founded. With truth and serving and caring being so much a part of the original desire among so many people. So America is facing this whole self-desired, consumer-driven society. You have in our midst so many examples of the exaltation of the autonomous self, of the person who thinks life is all about me and, and not about others. One place, and you folks know, I believe that marriage and the family is the hope of our culture. I believe that when that breaks apart, there's no social program that you can put together that will ever knit the lives and hearts of people back who've gone through the terrible tragedies that happen because of that. So let me just encourage you to think about one thing as we address this whole idea of the autonomous self in our culture. The area of marriage. Biblically, marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. And when a couple stands before one another, they, they say extraordinary things that a sane person would think several times before saying. 
And believe me, Marilyn and I are in this right now because our third son just asked a girl to marry him. And believe it or not, she said yes. So at the end of this year, sometime at the end of December, my son Michael is going to marry a lovely, beautiful girl named Cassie Dia, whose father, interestingly, is Lebanese and who came to America with nothing and took the American dream and made something out of himself and his family, wife and eight children. Love the Lord, as does my Michael, who has asked her to marry him. So, so we're teaching him right now covenant, that marriage is a covenant. And, and you're going to stand before Cassie, Michael, at the end of December, and you're going to say words like this. I, Michael, take you, Cassie, to be my wife. And I do promise and, what folks, and covenant. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband. In plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. Now, now that idea of covenant's rooted in God's relationship with us, he made a covenant with Abraham, and then through Jesus, by accepting him as Lord and Savior, we make a covenant with God through Christ. And, and basically, the whole idea of covenant is I'm never leaving. I'm never leaving. I don't care what happens with my feelings or my circumstances. I'm just never leaving. Back door's locked from the outside. We're going to make this thing work. And it's just amazing to me when both people lock the door from the outside and you believe in covenant, you'll find a way to make it work. You just do. You do. But think about marriage in America today. It's not rooted in covenant. It's rooted in consumerism. If I've had one, I've had 5,000 couples in my office where one looks at the other and says, I don't feel like I love you anymore. And I'm out of here. And I go, that's consumerism. That's not covenant. Or you've put on 20 pounds. Don't mean to offend anybody out there, okay? You've put on 20 pounds. Circumstances have changed. And I always ask, what does that have to do with anything? It's a consumer statement that's rooted in feelings and circumstances that has nothing to do with covenant. And I just believe in the church for Christians, we've got to reclaim that covenant of marriage and what it means and for children to be brought up in the safety of knowing that mom and dad aren't going to leave. And believe me, I don't want to hurt anybody who's here. I'm a pretty tender-hearted guy. Believe it or not, Marilyn tells me I can get really loud sometimes. I know you know that too. But in my heart, I'm a pretty tender guy. And I don't want to hurt any of you who've been through divorces. I really don't. But how do I preach not wanting to hurt you, but wanting to save marriage from God's understanding of covenant and being rid of this idea of the autonomous self-defining God's idea of what marriage should be. And, and you see it in other areas. I, I have no desire to hurt anybody, but when was gender ever defined by feelings? When? Dear friends, every social scientist will tell you gender's fluid. And young people go from feeling like, I want to be a boy to I want to be a girl. And if Marilyn was up here right now, she'd tell you between 5 and 12, she wanted to be a boy. Because she loved playing football. 
and swinging from trees. And then her femininity kicked in. Why can't we be patient as a culture and let God define truth as he says truth is instead of letting our feelings define the autonomous self? And folks, I could go on and on and on, but I don't have time to. But the point is made. When a nation starts expressing national pride and edges God out. When we say, you can't pray anymore, especially in our schools. When we say, no more Bibles at any government meeting, sorry. When we start depending upon our military for our defense as a nation and not upon the resources of Almighty God who can call upon the millions upon millions of the angel host to come and protect us, when that becomes our reality, we are a nation moving toward judgment. Now, I'm really a nice guy. And I'm a pretty happy guy. I'm not a negative Nelly, really. And I just believe so much that God can change things in a second. But the key is around this word, humility. Humility. I've been hanging out in the Gospels a lot over the last several months, reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what the word Gospels mean, in case you didn't know that. And it really is interesting to me, the messages Jesus gives his people. Things like, come unto me, all of you who are heavy laden and weary, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Isn't that a great message? And there's nothing you can do that is beyond my forgiveness and grace to you. And, and the message of a woman who breaks an expensive jar of oil and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair and all the angry, prideful, how do you let that happen to you kind of people hear Jesus say, man, those who have sinned a great deal also love a great deal. And he forgives her. And I'm going, yeah. Don't you love those messages? Come on, shout at me a little bit. Don't you love those messages? Aren't they great messages? They're all rooted in, in the grace and love of God who pursues us through Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins and have eternal life. Such a great message. But are you aware just alongside of those messages, Jesus also says, hey, the kingdom of God's like a man who owns a field and he gives it to some people and he goes away, but he's going to come back one day and hold them accountable for how they've taken care of his field. Oh, man, come on, Jesus, just tell me how much you love me and forgive me. Don't tell me that you've given me my life and that one day you're going to come back and hold me accountable for how I've lived this life. Come on. But it's there. In Matthew 25, before Jesus comes back, he's going to gather all the nations before him. He's going to separate them as sheep and goats. Those who've lived faithfully and accepted him, believed in him, obeyed him, and, and those that haven't. Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, America, no exceptions. So, again, so that you don't feel overwhelmingly sad when you leave, is there hope? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So what's the gospel? The word gospel means good news. The good news is God loves us through Jesus, died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. But before you believe in the good news, you've got to believe the bad news. And believe me, for many of you, the good news is better than you can imagine. God loves you even more than you think. Jesus on the cross proves it. But the bad news is even worse than you think. Since birth, we've had the poison of pride imbibe our systems. And for those of you who don't believe in the doctrine of depravity and the doctrine of original sin, especially in children, you know, you hold them, they're so cooey and ooey and gooey and beautiful, right? Have you had to teach your children how to obey or disobey? Come on now, be honest. You've got to teach them to obey. You've got to teach their strong wills to align themselves to your will and hopefully then the will of God. Because we're all birthed with pride the autonomous self. Now, we're birthed also with a lot of goodness because we have the image of God stamped on our lives. That's how people who don't love Jesus or even have a hint of God achieve great things. And we are seeing in our culture the rise of the nuns, aren't we? They have become 25% of our culture, people who say, I'm just spiritual, but I don't believe in God or anything. I don't know what that really means, but that's what I hear all the time. But they've arisen, as has the rising of the radical agnostic and atheist, from 2% to now 10%, edging God out. And the way to begin to deal with that is to realize, you know, I'm just a hopeless rebel in the sight of God. I have shaken my fist at him and demanded autonomy away from him. I've tried to live life on my own terms. And then when you realize that before a holy God who's perfect, the only response can be either reject, autonomously live on yourself, or fall to your knees and say, what a great and godless sinner I am. And it's so hard to get there, isn't it? What keeps us from going to our knees and admitting we're hopeless, rebels, treacherously rebelling against a holy God is our pride. It's our pride. But when you come to that position of the bad news and then you look at the cross of Christ and realize Jesus took all of the pain of the penalty of God's judgment upon his son instead of us and then gives us the gift of his love, grace, forgiveness, we then become new people in Christ. And what should be our ultimate posture in that new position in Christ is humility. I mean, you know, everything you have in life is a gift from God. Your breath, your clothes, the food you eat, the job you have, everything's a gift from him. And then you realize especially eternal life is a gift, right? Because what did you do to earn it? Nothing. And yet God still came and died on the cross. So your response is humility. Oh, God, thank you for everything. When the Billy Graham Library opened some 10 years ago, I was one pastor invited to be there among others, and I was able to sit on the front row when they laid out the plans and Dr. Graham came out and was going to address everyone. He didn't even get a chance to. We all stood up and just started wildly applauding this great man of God who's done more to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ than anyone in contemporary history. And the place wouldn't stop applauding for him, and you could sense his discomfort. Didn't like it one bit. 
And after about three minutes of uproarious applause with shaking hands, this almost 90-year-old man at that point asked everybody to sit down. I did, curious about what would be his first statement. Here's what he said. He must increase, I must decrease. He quoted John 3.30, where John the Baptist said that about Jesus. I, I must decrease, and he must increase. Folks, that's humility. I want to be less known, less exalted, so that Jesus, the giver of all life, can be more exalted. When I entered into ministry, my dad said, son, I want to give you a biblical figure to follow. I thought, oh, that's great. It's going to be Moses, David, Paul, one of these great, great leaders. You know who he chose? He said, son, be like Baruch. I said, dad, who is Baruch? He said he was Jeremiah's mentee. He was maybe even training him to take over after he died. In Jeremiah 45.5, Jeremiah says to Baruch, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. I've never forgotten it. It is not about me. It's about Jesus. So choose humility. Remember James's words? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Choose it. How do you choose it? Well, husbands, this week... See your wife drop with apoplectic seizures when you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. <laughs> or maybe choose the lesser seat for somebody else to have it. Or choose not to buy XYZ to help a poor person or someone caught in sexual trafficking. Find some way to pray and trust God. Share the gospel with a neighbor and care less whether they reject you or not. Because it's not about you. They're really rejecting Jesus. Humble yourselves. Choose humility. Find different ways to do it this week. And you know what will happen? The Bible promises he'll lift you up. There will be miraculous, supernatural ways that Jesus will exalt you. Trust him. Because here's the thought I want to leave you with. I think we've got it on the screen here. It has to do with humility. Be humble or be humbled. Got it? Be humble or be humbled. And I can tell you after having walked with the Lord a really long time, it's really better to choose humility <laughs> than have the Lord be the one who humbles you. Right? right? To the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.